You're listening to Awakening with Rabbi Ami Silver on the Shefa Podcast Network. Join Rabbi Ami as he shares the wisdom of the Hasidic master, Rabbi Kolonimus Kalman Shapira of Piazetsna. Through the Piazetsna Rebbe's various works, Rabbi Ami guides us on a unique path of healing, transformation, and awakening to experiencing the divine that is steeped in the Jewish mystical tradition. Um, today I want to talk about Yom Kippur. It's upon us in just a few days. And I want to speak about what in many ways is in our day and age, for sh- especially the central practice of the day of Yom Kippur. And believe it or not, I don't mean fasting. Um, for most of us, like Yom Kippur equals not eating or all of the restrictions of the day. Um, but there's actually a, along with that, a, a, a core biblical element of this day. I mean, the fasting is also biblical, but 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 the part of the day that, that we're actually actively engaged in, not just refraining from. Um, and that has to do with, with tshuva, with the process of return to God, and, and particularly through the act of vidui, which means confession. Um, I'm going to go through a number of these sources with you, but i just kind of say from the get-go, I think that for many of us in in the modern day, the idea of confessing sins, at least from from the Jewish framework, it feels maybe, you know, the thing we do on Yom Kippur, maybe some people do in their Tachanun prayers, but, but it doesn't fit so well in our modern kind of sensibilities. Um, it's not things that, you know, outside of the realm of religion, like confessing, you know, what exactly is this meant to accomplish? Am I supposed to just make myself feel bad? Um, am I supposed to just feel very guilty? Aren't we Jews already good enough at feeling guilty? We also have to talk about feeling guilty. Um, it does touch on elements of of shame and of and of guilt and, and remorse, perhaps uh, kind of difficult emotions that that confession uh, either triggers in us or even our associations with it already um, kind of bring up these challenging. Um, feelings and experiences. And and that is actually something I want to address tonight as well. And and something that I think Yom Kippur is is actually very consciously and purposefully addressing the the reality and the existence of of, of shame and and embarrassment. And 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 part of that is is actually um the practice of, of confession on Yom Kippur is, is also, I think, offering a way to transform and actually use um, really the encounter with these experiences and feelings as a transformative experience, as a growthful and, um, and on some level life-changing experience. So that's what I want to look at with you today. Um, we're going to start with just the basics, the First verses I brought here from Vayikra, from Leviticus, in the Parsha that's speaking about the day of Yom Kippur. I just want to show you that this goes all the way back to the roots of Yom Kippur. Um, actually, before these verses I'm going to read to you even, there's, there's actually three times that the Torah describes on the day of Yom Kippur that the high priest would, would do confession. And if you look in your Yom Kippur Machzor, this is actually repeated and reenacted by the whole community um, through the in the Musaf service. The Kohen Gadol, the high priest, would first do a confession for himself and his family, 
and each confession involved a sacrifice. There was an animal, a cow in the first two cases that he would put his hands on and, and confess his sins. Then he would confess sins for all of the priests, all of the Kohanim. And then these are the verses I brought, which he did on behalf of the collective nation. It says, um, Aaron, or the high priest later, would, would do a um, lot drawing. There were two goats brought. Uh, we're not going to get so deep into that, but it, it might come back into our discussion here, so I'll give you a little background. Two goats identical to one another that had to be brought to the temple, and two notes. One said, La Hashem, to God, and one said, La Azazel, which means something like either to the wasteland or to the demonic force of the barren desert. Um, not going to get into that today, but if you're interested, look look more into that on your own. And these two notes were put into a into a a container and shaken up, and the con would draw one out, and whichever one he picked up, that would decide you know which of these two goats would go to God, which would be sacrificed in the temple, and which would go to Azazel, who was walked out into the into the desert to the edge of a cliff and shoved off the cliff, tumbling down into the into its death. Really intense stuff. But that's part of the background. Here, verse 21, Aaron would put his hands on the head of the Sa'ir Hachai, and he would confess with his hands on this goat all of the sins of Israel. Pishayim, l'chokhatatam, all their iniquities, their misdeeds, and he would place them. And then it would be sent out into the desert walked and, and, and the symbolism or effect of the goat being thrown off the cliff was that that goat took all of the sins with him. But the main practice here is that the Kohen is doing vidui, is confessing the sins. And then I just brought a, a few more verses. I'm going to go to verse 30. Because it is on this day of Yom Kippur that God will atone will grant you atonement from all of your sins. You will be cleansed, made pure, in the presence of God, before God. These are important things to just kind of have in the back of our mind that we're going to return to. The act of confession, the cleansing and purification process that takes place on this day before God. In God's presence, the Fnei Hashem will get more deeply into what that what that means. Um, the next source I brought is from Maimonides, from the Rambam, who codifies the the laws of tshuva of return to God. And you see in the Rambam right away that that confession is a definitive act of tshuva. Just read his introduction here. There's one positive command, one mitzvah, basic mitzvah of tshuva, that is that a one who has committed a sin returns from their sin, again evoking those words before God. What does tshuva look like? What does return to God look like? It involves vidui. It involves this verbal confession going to jump down the first uh, halacha he brings. I'm just going to kind of paraphrase in English any of the mitzvot in the Torah, whether it's a positive command or a command to refrain from something. If a person violates any of those commands, willingly, unconsciously, when they do tshuva, 
when they return from their misdeed, chayav lihitvadot lifnei ha'el baruchu. They're obligated to confess in the presence of God, the Holy One, before God. As it says, it says later in, in, in Bamidbar that, that a person, when they do tshuva, they, they're going to confess. And then the Rambam says, What does confession look like? The person says, Ana Hashem, please God. Chatati, I've sinned, aviti, pashati lefanecha. Us Jews have a lot of names for sins. <laughs> you know, like different cultures have a lot of terms for things that they're very familiar with and know intimately. So we have all shades of sins. The, the ones I meant to do, the ones I didn't meant to do, the ones I didn't even realize, um, etc. Um, and then the Rambam goes on, I regret my action. Boshti, we, we spoke about the emotional experience. I'm embarrassed. I feel ashamed by what I did. And this was important for the Rambam that the person also state and commit themselves, I'm never going to go back there again. So the Rambam says, this is the, this is the essence of what Vidui is. This is the essence of confession. And whoever um, does this a lot and for a long time and more and more, it's praiseworthy to, you know, this is the, he's giving you the bare bones. He's like, the more you can do, the better. So the Rambam gives us the bare bones formula. The essential um, components here are admittance of the act. And by the way, the word vidui, lehodot, the root of the meaning of that word is to admit. To admit. So there's the admission of my actions. There's addressing God. Like I have to bring God into it. Right? This is what we saw, Lifnei Hashem. It has to take place. I have to bring myself into God's presence to do vidui. It's not just me talking to myself, oh, you should never have done that. I can't believe what I did. It's not an inner dialogue. It's showing up and exposing myself before God. Um, it involves this kind of, um, the way, the, in his language, regret and, and shame that, that, that comes up um, by what I did. Um, and he says, the more you do, the better. And, and if any of us who've, who've gone through a Yom Kippur in a traditional sense, we know that there's pages upon pages upon pages of vidui. And it's this kind of sin and that kind of sin that goes through the, through the alphabet, to list all the kinds. This is part of what, what the Rambam is, is, is referring to here, is that the most comprehensive that you, comprehensively you can do this, it's that much better. Now, <laughs> I already want to come back to what I brought up earlier. It's better for what reason? Like, isn't it enough to just say, I did it, it was wrong, I don't want to do it again? Like, do I, is this about beating ourselves up? Like, what is the, what is the spiritual gift and purpose of Vidui? Is it to admit guilt and move on? Maybe, maybe that's part of it. Is there something more to it? I think there is something even more to that, um, to the experience of admitting these wrongdoings, the experience of doing this, exposing this in the presence of the master of the universe, of the creator of God. 
Um, we're focusing to, tonight on Vidui, but 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 I think this is a separate and also maybe related element here, which is Vidui is about getting to the on some level getting to the deepest truth of the matter that we can. The Rambam has regret and never coming back to it. I'll say that in the Torah's formulation, Vidui doesn't include those things. I'm not saying the Rambam's wrong, but this is the Rambam's particular formulation. For the Torah's, from the Torah's perspective, the ikar ikar, the main primary element here is the admission itself. Can I admit truth? Can I admit truth that is difficult to admit? What happens after that, I don't know. And I'll just share one more thing. You know, we I, there's a common tradition to before Rosh Hashanah to do what's called Hatarat Nidarim, which is an annulment of vows. Again, it's like ancient Talmudic um, procedure. And, and we do Kol Nidre to start Yom Kippur, where we once again collectively annul our vows. And I was doing the, the Hatarat Nidarim before Shoshana. And it's not like you come in with like, oh, I know I did this vow and said this vow. Actually, a lot of the language there is like, I don't even know what I, all the things I promised myself I would do or not do. All the things I promised God I would do or not do. All the things I promised other people I would do or not do. I'm going to just say, please help me annul all of them as if I never made the promise in the first place. We, this is a practice we do both through Hatar and Zareem and Kol Nidre. And, and what, what, what I was feeling while I was saying it was just the utter depth of fallibility that it touches upon. What I'm doing in this process of annulling all my vows, of basically saying I'm not willing to say that I can keep any of my promises and I want to undo them as if I never made them, is, is I'm touching on that, that ultimately um, very human reality where I am standing on, on unsolid ground. There isn't, at my root, I cannot say that I can keep my, my promises and best intentions. I cannot claim that. And if I'm going to be utterly honest, the best I can do is say, please just, just, just erase all the promises I ever made for right now. Right? It feels like childish. You remember like as a, as a kid, it's like, take, you want to take it back. I said, no backsies. Like, can you take back the thing you said? Well, like we, when we come to Rosh Hashanah and Kippur, we, we take an honest look at, at ourselves. We, we touch that, that slippery, fallible reality of being human. I'm a, bro- I'm, I'm a broken creature. And from the places of a broken creature, how can I relate to, to God? Well, I can admit that I'm, not, that I'm not impermeable, that I'm flawed. And I can just say, what I can admit right now is that my promises aren't really worth what I thought they were worth. We need to engage that point of fallibility in order to actually engage in tshuva, in, actu- in order to actually begin a process of repair and of betterment and healing of some, in some way. It doesn't come from a place of either of expecting perfection. It comes from a place of admitting the truth of our reality. Um, I want to I want to come back into 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 these sources. So the Mishnah in in Masechet Yoma describes the process of the day and describes all of the um, acts of of confession and and 
there's something very unique that happens on Yom Kippur, which is that the high priest pronounces the holy name of God out loud. The name Yudke Vavke, the ineffable name, the name that cannot be spoken, that is not allowed to be spoken, the Kohen speaks out loud on Yom Kippur. And not just once. I think all in all, it's something like 10 times, if you count it up. And, and today, even in, in our, in our um, prayers, we actually reenact the response of the community. Because every time the Kohen would say God's name out loud, everyone would fall on their faces and they would call out, Baruch Shem Kavod Machutoli Olam Ba'ed. A line that we ourselves whisper all year round and that we say out loud one day a year in response to God's name being said out loud. Come look at this Mishnah with me and we'll see when does the Kohen say God's name out loud. When is this actually happening? So, Balo Etzel Sayyara Mishaleach, this too is about the third, the final confession, which is for the collective. He comes over to that goat that's going to be sent away. He puts his hands upon the goat and starts to confess. Here's how he would say it. Ana Hashem. Please, O oh God. Now, when the Mishnah here says Hashem, the Mishnah actually, this is where the Kohen would pronounce the divine name. When the Kohen did confession is when the divine name would be pronounced out loud. So he would say, please, Yudke Vavke, however that name is pronounced. Avu pashu Israel, your people, your nation, they've done all sorts of sins and wrongdoings before you. Ana, please, Bashem, please, in, and he would then again pronounce the name. Kaperna, atone for all of these wrongdoings and sins that they've sinned and done wrong and etc. Lifanecha, that they have sinned before you. Kakatuv, as it's written in the in the Torah, ki This is the verse we read on this very day. God will atone for you to cleanse you and purify you. Mikol lifnei Hashem titaru. You will be cleansed and purified before Hashem. And here, once again, the Kohen would not say Hashem and would not say Adonai, but would pronounce the holy name itself. So three times during the confession. Please, God, in the name of God, atone. As it says, you will be cleansed and atoned before God. And the priests, when they would hear the Shem HaMiforash, the ineffable name, spoken out loud from the mouth of the high priest, they would bow and fall on their faces and say, Allah, Baruch Shem Kavod Machutoli Olam Ba'ed, may the name of the honor of God's kingdom be blessed forever and ever. If you've been to a traditional service, when this happens in the repetition of Musaf, everybody bows down on their faces on the floor and says this line out loud. It's a very powerful and dramatic um, experience and, and scene, but just want to focus here on the on the very simple th- thing that's happening. When is the time of year where God's name is able to be expressed as it is in the fullest way? When you can actually hear and say this name is when we are confessing our sins before God. It's during the confession. Confession, in a sense. In this moment of Yom Kippur, and by the way, this was true the other two times the Kohen would confess, when he confessed for all the other Kohanim and for himself, he would also say God's name out loud. 
when God's name is being spoken out loud, the greatest point of a revelation of this divine reality where we can say who and what God really is, you can speak this name that you don't have access to all year round. You can say it as it is, not just on the holiest day of the year, but when you are confessing sins. When we're speaking about, ostensibly, all those not-so-godly or holy things. How could it be that when I'm speaking about the worst things that I've done, is when I encounter and pronounce the greatest degree of, of divine revelation. Like, how is it that that's where I can truly speak and hear who and what God truly is? And all year round, I have to kind of tiptoe around it. But for some reason, when I'm speaking about my sins, that's when I can really do it. It's a remarkable thing. Somehow, the act of vidui, of confession, goes hand in hand, and, and I would say atonement, goes hand in hand with this greater level of revelation. It somehow grants access to a more pronounced and explicit encounter with the divine reality. That's what I want to want us to focus on for the rest of our session here. Okay, so this teaching from Rabbi Nachman is uh, from his main work, the Kutei Moran, from the first volume, teaching six Torah Vav, and it's a long teaching. And and if you don't have experience learning Rabbi Nachman, he's extremely associative and. Poetic, one word and term turns into another word and term, which turns into another one. And it's kind of weaving a, a tapestry of, of meaning and ideas together. Um, and there's a lot of text here. So I'm going to do my best to read, explain, and lift out, and maybe at times even paraphrase what we're reading, and, and hope to, to be bringing you along through it. Um, and uh, if you feel lost and you need to ask, please do. And uh, if you feel a little bit lost and foggy in the process, that is actually also part of what happens in learning Rabbi Nachman's Torah, that you enter, it's like you enter into one room and it leads you into a different room and into a different part of that room and you don't really remember how you got there. Um, so part of the practice here is to also just focus and try to understand what, what am I looking at right now? And he'll weave it back in, bring us back to, to the map of, of how we got there. So Rabbi Nachman begins like this. It says, This is on your sheets, page two, bottom of page two. Every person needs to decrease, needs to kind of limit the, their engagement in kvod atzmo, in seeking their own honor. And to increase honor of the makom, the place, the omnipresent one. That's the name of God, the one who is always everywhere. He says, if somebody who's, who's chasing after honor, I want, I want status, I want honor, I want power, I want to feel important, 
the only kind of honor that, that they can really come to is what's, what he calls kfod, is kfod melachim, is the kind of honor that a king has, that a politician has, and not to a divine honor. As it says, and again, I'll read before unpacking, it says in, in Proverbs, kfod melachim chakor devar, what does human honor look like? What does royal honor look like? Political honor? When people seek to be honored, they seek power and status. So it immediately elicits from everybody else, like, who does this person think they are? Why should that person be important and not me? What makes them so special? Why do they think that? Why should they be in charge? On the human plane, he says, a person who seeks honor. The most it can reach is this point where they're vying for control of, over other people and everybody else is kind of like inquiring, uh, I don't know, where does this person's honor really come from? And it draws opposition. Somebody who seeks their honor, they're going to always encounter opposition to that honor that they're seeking of either people or I would say even just a response. When I'm looking around to affirm myself in a... In, in maybe a, an external or, or, or shallow way. So I'm never going to reach a, a true affirmation of my own sense of, of worth and honor. It's going to be a constant battle. Constant battle. Am I deserving? Am I not deserving? Will always be a question. But somebody who is able to shift from seeking honor for themselves in this way and increase kvod hamakom. I think it's, it's very beautiful that he uses the word makom here um, to describe divine what, what divine honor is. That makom is, is the God, the godly reality that is, that is the encompassing reality of our lives, of our world. It's, it's everywhere all the time. It's beyond me. And it's the context that my life is part of and, and within. If that is the place where I'm seeking to discover what, what, does, what does it look like to honor the, the everything? How does my, how do I find value in my life or a sense of self-worth by placing myself in the context of a divine reality? Then a person may merit what he calls divine honor. And people aren't going to be sitting there asking, why is this person, why should they be in charge? Why are they important? Are they deserving? Are they not deserving? You know, forget about other people for a minute. The own voice is in my own mind. If I'm seeking, I just I think it's so so powerful what he's saying. If I'm seeking my self-worth by lining myself up against other people, my self-worth is always going to come into question. Either by my questioning my own sense of value or other people questioning me in a way that's going to, to be meaningful. But if I view myself, or the more he kind of puts it on a scale, the more or less, increase, decrease, the more I place myself in the context of divine reality. So the more the defining 
value and 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 worth of my own life is something that's godly. It's not something to question. It's a it's a it's it's God's world that I'm finding my place within. And he goes on, I'm going to go to the next paragraph. It's impossible to merit, to, to touch into this kind of sense of honor. Return, tshuva, is the pathway towards that kind of kavod, that kind of honor and self-worth. It's a very challenging line. Rabbi Nachman says the primary act, meaning, mode of return is that when a person hears their own bizayon, their insult, disgrace, disregard, disrespect, yidom v'yishtok. They're silent. I don't know about for you, for me, it immediately brings up questions of like, what, am I supposed to let myself be be mistreated? To silence, not stand up for myself? Let myself be be trampled on, abused, mistreated? It's a very uncomfortable thing to, for me at least, to just read at face value. I want to read on to the end of the paragraph here and, and, and get a deeper sense of, of what he's talking about here. Goes on, he makes an association here, late kavod below kaf. These are quotes extracted from the Zohar that honor is dependent on the letter kaf. I'll just be very, we'll be on the surface here. We're not going to go super deep into this. And kaf is associated with, with keter, with the, the highest sphira in the system, the crown. Right? We're talking about honor, about divine honor. The keter is the is the point that is the closest to its origin in the, in the divine. True honor is about being attached to the closest, in the closest, most intimate way to to the source of my being. That's where honor really, really, really lies and really exists. This is keter. He goes on, and again, we'll just go with his associations here. Bechinat Ehiya. Keter is Kabbalistically associated with the quality, the divine name of Ehiya. If you recall, when, when Moshe, when Moses was at the burning bush, Moshe said to God, what's your name? They're going to ask me, who are you? What's your name? What should I tell them? And God says, Ehiya Asher Ehiya. I will be that which I will be. So just, just keep in mind that name, I will be. He's, he's, he's giving us a, a string of associations. Silence, keter, ehyeh, bivchinat tshuva. This is all the quality of returning. Why? Ki da ana zamin Because what does ehyeh mean? What is this divine name, this divine quality of, of keter and of tshuva that's... that's Symbolized through the name Ehiyah. The name Ehiyah in its simplest, mean, simplest sense means I am going to be. It's being in a state of, he's quoting from the Zohar here, which 
either means, depending on how you translate this word, it either means I am in a state of readiness to become. I am right now prepared to become something. Or anazamin could also mean I am about to become something. I will. It's a future-oriented name. But, but most importantly, when I speak this name, when I say this word, the statement I'm saying about myself is that I'm in a, I'm, I'm in a process now where I'm open to, be, to what I'm going to become. I'm not in a static sense of self. The name Ehyem means my becoming has not yet reached the point of maturation. And this is how the Rebbe is describing tshuva. Because if we just think about what tshuva is, tshuva is a process of, of change and transformation. And transformation begins when I'm ready to become. He goes on and he says, Hainu, Kodam Hatshuva Adain Enlo Havaya, Kilo Adain Loni Tavabolam. He says, Before a person engages in Chuva, he says the person is in a place of non-existence, of non-being. It's as if right now I have not yet begun to, to exist in this world. The way I can relate to this is if there's an area in my life that I feel I need to make real change and transformation in, it means that here is a place where I, I'm not yet here in the way I want to be here. The way that I want to exist, I'm not existing. And so in, in, the, in the beginning stages of tshuva, it's as if I don't yet exist. There's a part of me that has not yet found its place in this world. He's paraphrasing now the Gemara. Gemara says that one of the few things that Hill and Shammai both agree upon is that it would be easier to have never been born to be born. You're not saying there's there's a certain ease. If we had never come to the world in the first place, things would have been a lot a lot easier for us. Oh, but now that I'm here, I actually have to encounter this disjointed self where there's parts of me that have found a place to be, and there's parts of me that feel I'm not I'm not here yet. Haven't figured out how to be here yet, how to exist yet. However, when a person attempts and begins to engage in this process of cleansing, the process of purification, the process of tshuva, then they enter into the state that's described by the name ehiyah. I'm going to become. I'm ready to exist. I'm ready to become. There's something very powerful if we just think for a moment of that, this name, Ehiyah, 
right? God first revealed this name to Moshe at the burning bush when God was saying, this is the name that's coming to liberate people from their enslavement and oppression that they've been buried beneath for hundreds of years. How are they, Moshe saying, how, how are they going to go along with this plan, God? Who, what power, what force could possibly release them from this and make them have a faith in this? And the answer God gives is, is it's, the, it's that quality of we're ready to become something we've not yet become. That the process of possibility even, of shifting from, from slavery to freedom, the process of, of liberating parts of ourselves, or liberating ourselves from certain patterns or ways of being, this, this name is that, that powerful mode of being open and ready to become that which I have not yet been. Rehachon says this, what he's describing, this quality of tshuva, remember he said before it's related to keter, this has to do with the crown. Because crown, one word, one of the meanings of keter in Hebrew is crown, and one of the associated meanings is wait, pause. He'll come to explain where that word comes from, so just, Store that in your mind for now. He says, tshuva requires pause and waiting. Tshuva doesn't happen like that. For anyone who's ever tried to, to heal, grow, work on, develop a part of themselves, we wish that it happened in a moment. And usually when we think it happened in a moment, it didn't happen. Rabbi Nachman saying it's a process that takes waiting. As it says in the Gemara Yoma, so I'll give you the full quote from, from the rabbis because it's very, um, it illustrates this point very powerfully. It says, Somebody who wants to, to get messy, to defile themselves, who to make, to enter into impurity, it says the door is open for them. It doesn't take a lot of work to go there. You don't have to fight through barriers. It's like, yep. Yeah. The options there. Abalitaher, but somebody who wants to purify themselves, Messiah. Kumar says they 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 get support, they get assistance. The way Rabbi Nachman's reading that is it takes time. You need help. It's not so simple that you just open the door and you jump in. Mashal I'll tell you the whole mashal. The parable that the rabbis give is somebody comes to a stand, like in a marketplace, where there's somebody selling um, different items. The guy's selling neft. He's selling like um, fuel, oil, stinky, stinky oils. So if the if the merchant is there and you come to his table and he's in the back playing with boxes, he says, "Okay, you want the you want the fuel, you want the oil, the gasoline. Just leave them. Just weigh it yourself on the scale and leave the money. I don't want to. I don't want to touch it. You want that? Just take it. I don't want to get involved. But if somebody comes to buy a farsimon, which it's not clear exactly what that was, but in the times of the, of the Talmud, it was a very precious um, fruit perfume." Somebody wants to buy the finest perfume, Omrinlo Hamten. So the merchant says, you know what, wait, I want to come weigh it with you on the scale so that you and I can be perfumed together by its fragrance. 
this is how the rabbis describe the difference between coming to become tamei and become tahor. To become tamei, to become closed up and 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 sully ourselves. So you know, we've got plenty of opportunities to do that, and and so to speak, God gives us full full reign there. You want it? Go ahead and take it. But if you want to become pure, the image that the that the rabbi says. God comes and says, let me, let me hold this together with you so that we can both benefit from its beautiful smell. My experience of that might be, man, this is hard. Why is this taking so long? I think that I want this, but I keep messing up and it's like it's not working. And the rabbis are saying, you in a place where you need help, it's you're, you're helped, and there's something more beautiful, more refined, that smells more beautiful, that's, that's, getting, that's developing here. It's a process that God is sharing with you. And that's going to be a slower process. Because the perfume is for God to become perfumed also through this process. If you pay attention to the image the rabbis are saying, it's, it's not just me who's, getting, who's benefiting from the purification. There's something more divine being uncovered through that process. It's beyond just me, you know, doing something better than I did last time. There's a greater uncovering that's happening here. And it takes time. He says, this is what it's, what the crown is like, the crown of, that we have to wait for. It says in Eov, in Job, this is God saying to Job, Katarli means wait for me. Wait for me a little bit and then I'll speak to you. You want the answer right away and the response is wait. And when we want to engage in tshuva and we want to smell better, <laughs> we want to feel the the, the, that, that, that we're living more cleanly in this world, that we're more whole with ourselves, that we have existence, that I've found a place for myself where I've not yet found a place, this is something that we wait for. Not wait in passivity, but it's a process that requires some patience. I want to say one more thing about what Rabbi Nachman just said here relating the name Ehiyah, Ekiyah, and relating this quality of waiting and the story of the rabbis of the merchant is coming to smell good as well. There's something unique about the divine name, Ekiah, I will be, which is that it's a name of God that I speak in the first person. No other name of God says anything about me. A name says something about the person, the other, who I'm naming. But if I want to say the name of God, this name of God, Ekia, I have to speak about myself. God says to Moshe, you want to know what's going to liberate people? Teach them to speak about God in the first person. Teach them to call to a God who they have to draw on a divine quality in their own being to address. 
And Rabbi Nachman saying that to, to do tshuva, to really engage in tshuva, it's engaging in a process of uncovering a quality that is godly within me that has not yet been expressed in this world, that has not yet found a place in my life. It's a process of me and God coming to smell better together. Of there being a greater, newer sense of, of a divine reality that I've not, until this point, been, been living in and been living with. Um, I'm going to paraphrase the next couple paragraphs here. Just trying to just give me a moment to think about a, how to bring out from here the, the important pieces for, for us. Rabbi Nachman basically um, goes on to say, right, if you remember earlier, he said that the primary mode of tshuva is to hear your disgrace, your disrespect, and to, to, to remain silent. Very challenging and difficult thing to, to say. Um, in the breast of tradition, actually, a lot of the, the way that that statement is understood is that, right, because bring up the question, what do you mean? So my tshuva is dependent on other people coming and spitting in my face? Like, is that, I can't do tshuva until somebody else starts to start to speak badly to me, and then that doesn't quite make sense. So the, the way that, that, that it's understood in the breast of tradition by some of the classical commentaries here, and based on what, what Rabbi Nachman goes on to speak about of confession, is that, no, I don't have to hear somebody else saying my disgrace. I have to hear my bizayon from within myself. You know, what, for example, when I, when I do confession, what am I doing? I'm voicing. I'm voicing all of those all of those dark places. I'm, I'm speaking out loud. I'm proclaiming to myself all the places that, I'm, that I've been off, that I've been in the wrong. Those parts of myself that have not yet found, found their footing in the place in this world. I'm speaking that all to myself and I'm taking it inside and listening to it with silence. Meaning that I'm listening to it without justifying myself or making excuses. Again, that vidui means admission. Admission is more important here than confession as its primary meaning. To confess is to be able to truly admit to myself, give space to all that has been off, to all of me that has been off, and to, to, to hear it to let it really sink in. To take it in with silence. And what Rabbi Nachman goes on and, and, and explains here is that, that that silence, to really feel even the, the shame, to feel the shamefulness of, of admitting to myself, my neighbor cats over here, to, to be able to admit those things to myself and to really hear and take it in without jumping to, to justify and cover it over and, and, and say, oh, no, but no, but it was because it doesn't make excuses, but to just hear it. So he actually describes here the, the sort of blood rush to my face, the shameful experience here that 
on the other side of that, I can, I can, I can find my renewal. That in a sense, the tshuva that I'm hoping for, that I'm waiting for, remember that I have to wait for, that, that it's hard to get from, from point A to point B, from where I am to where I want to be. Sometimes part of what I need to do is actually traverse the, the shame and embarrassment of, of saying to myself where I've been off. And if I can actually just silent in silence, let myself take that in and let the feeling wash, wash over me, bubble up through me. So on the other end of that, oh, wow, here I am. In a sense, part of what stops me from admitting the things that I'm ashamed of is the shame itself. I'm too ashamed to say where I'm off. Most of the time in our relationships and between us and ourselves to, to certain degrees too, we walk around conveniently making, making stories to protect ourselves from, from, from that kind of admission. And shame is painful. It really, it really can be painful. Here, what Rabbi Nachman is saying is, if we can create a space for ourselves where I can hear it from myself, I can admit it to myself, and I can just be here with myself and all of those feelings of be them shame, remorse, regret, confusion, anger, hurt, whatever it is, I can, in a sense, midwife myself through that process to get to the other side of it. And when I get to the other side of that, there, there's actually a possibility for, for that cleansing to, to take place through this process. That once I can see, I can encounter the shame, so I don't need to hold on to the story that, that stops me from admitting where I've been off. And once I can allow myself to truly admit and hear and take in that reality of not only where I'm off, but where I don't want to be anymore. And I can see that that shame, that dragon, it wasn't, it didn't destroy me. So then I can encounter that part of me that I'm waiting for. I can encounter the part of me that's, that's in a sense bigger than the wrong parts, than the shamed parts. There's, a, there's me that's bigger than that. And to encounter that, I need to go through that process of experience, that, that flush that flush of shame, of, of, of difficult encounter with that truth in me. I encourage you to look at the rest of this piece in Rabbi Nachman on your own, because um, I'm paraphrasing and extracting, but I, for the sake of time, I, I, I want to go ahead and, and bring it back to what we asked and what we brought up. When Yom Kippur, when we confess, that is where we meet the name of God. What it, what it means on some level to say God's name out loud, to hear God's name out loud, is for, for us collectively to speak a truth that we don't speak all year round. And it's a truth of there not being anything in reality that is other than God. 
To say God's name, name out loud is to put the divine stamp on every single aspect and facet of reality. To say, what is here is the revelation, is the divine truth. There isn't anything other than that. And to encounter that collectively and individually, we also, in a sense, have to reckon with the parts of ourselves that cause us to feel separate from divine reality. There's parts of me that I'm hiding. There's parts of me that I'm too ashamed to, to recognize and give a place to in my life, to admit to. It's all of those things that we go there in Yom Kippur and we talk about over and over and over again. We get to bring up the muckiest stuff. The parts of ourselves that, that we, we try to tuck away and let exist in the shadows all year round. But to the degree to which parts of me can't find a place in this world, to that degree, there cannot be God in this world either. To that degree, the name of God is blocked from me. There isn't a truth. There isn't a place for that. And when I can bring those parts of me out into the world and at the same time place myself in the divine presence that includes and encompasses all of that, so I get to experience myself as bigger than my, my wrongs, the places that I'm off, my lacks, and I get to experience God as bigger than my wrongs and my lacks. I get to encounter the divine in a fuller way that involves more of me and makes more room for God as well. These words that the Torah speaks about, the purification is before God, is in a sense, that is the telling us the formula. It's that the, the process of tshuva and, and of tahara and of atonement, of purity, of, of, of being able to cleanse, wash parts of ourselves clean, it takes place to the degree to which we can bring our lives into the divine presence. And Yom Kippur is a day when I can bring the parts of me that don't want to face God to face God. Because when I'm, the, when I'm hiding those parts of myself, I've been trying to hide myself from, from this divine reality, all I'm really doing is closing myself off from accessing a larger, more encompassing divine truth. To speak the truth, to embody that truth, to feel that truth inside of me, to admit it, goes hand in hand with the process of allowing more space for divine reality within me and in my life. I want to close by, by sharing with you just these words. that I noticed them, so to speak, for the first time, uh, I think two years ago, a couple years ago when I was praying on Kippur. This is the last source on page five, page six. It's, this is a blessing that, that is there in each of the five prayers of Yom Kippur. 
which closes one of the sections of the prayer. We say, Baruch Atah Hashem, blessed are you, God, Melech Mochev Soleach Lavanotenu Lavanobet Yisrael. The one who pardons and, and, and forgives our sins and the sins of all of your people, the house of Israel. Then just look at these words. Uma'avir ashmotenu bechol shana b'shana. You wipe away our shame each and every year. Ma'avir ashmotenu. Hashem could be guilted and, and, and shame. Right? What we say in our prayer, the, the purpose of all of this is to engage in a process where I can become unashamed. I can bring my shame to God and get my shame wiped, moved, shifted. The first thing we say every time we do vidu is just a Remarkable thing, we say Ashamnu. Now, if you look at the rest of Ashamnu, Baganu, Gazanli, Dibarudofi, so that's the we've 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 been guilty or, or ashamed, and then all the other things are about actions we did. We we betrayed, we stole, we spoke falsehood, we we were perverted. We do we talk about actions, but the first thing we say is Ashamnu. When we do Vidui, the first thing we do is we bring up our shame. Now, on, on the surface, you can say, Ashamnu means, okay, God, like the Ramam said, I did wrong. I was a bad boy. I'm guilty. I think in a deeper sense, Ashamnu, the first thing I need to do vidui for, the first thing I need to admit, is that I've been carrying around all this shame. And when I can admit that I've been carrying around all this shame, then I can really start to speak about all the other things. The particulars of, of what has brought me shame, what I've been carrying. And I can examine those things, but 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 I first have to give myself permission to, to let that shame rise up to the surface and, and in a sense offer it up to God and say, I've been carrying out all the shame, so I haven't been, been facing you. I haven't been in your presence in the way that I hope to be, that I want to be, but right now I'm ready to. Here's the shame I've been carrying around, God. This is the first thing I'm gonna I'm gonna give to you. Now I can talk about all the things and the particulars. If there's anything to take from this, and we're, we're gonna close here, but if there's anything to take this, it's it's that we're we're being given permission on this day to speak out loud the things that we either don't talk about or only would, would, would say in a whisper all year round. But we're given here an invitation and an opportunity to bring it to the surface, to embrace the fullness of, of who we are and what life in God's world really looks like. And in doing so, to allow ourselves to be placed in a fuller way into, into God's presence, into God's world. That I'm ready to find a place now in your world because all of me can find a place now.
Many of these recordings are from Rabbi Ami's ongoing weekly classes given at Yeshivat Sharei Shalom in Jerusalem. For more information, go to shalom.org.il forward slash about. This podcast is supported in part from a grant from the Hadar Institute. The music is by Rav Daniel Kohn. The audio engineer is David Kwan. For more from the Shefa Podcast Network, visit our Facebook page and please subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts.